This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. I look back and I'm like, if I hadn't found stand-up comedy, I would be dead by now. I just really honestly believe that. The fact that I found my way out of it is a story of such rich absurdity that it doesn't, it almost doesn't ring true. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is an exciting episode, a redo, um, but it's with one of my favorite artists. Uh, The first episode we taped was obliterated by two, not one, but two recording failures, one in the main recording and then a secondary one in the backup recording. And uh, luckily, we're able to do it again. And I will tell you, um, as good as the first one was, the second one was even better. So I'm glad this is one we get to release. Hannah Gadsby is an Australian comedian. She was behind the remarkable Netflix special, The Net. She just recently brought out a new one called Douglas. Now, that's a piece of art that actually means a, a, a lot to me. It's one of those pieces of art where people tell you, 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 you engage with things and you can maybe get a glimpse, a little glimpse of what it is like to live as someone else in the world. And The Net did that for me. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful piece of work. And it's also just like its structure. Like I remember my jaw just dropping as it unfurled towards the end. Um, her most recent special is Douglas, which is about the way she thinks. Uh, Hannah Gadsby received a diagnosis of autism a couple of years back, and that has uh, contextualized parts of her life for her. So we talk about those issues, autism, um, the issues she brought up in the net around speech and safety and going through the world as somebody whom the world does not make much space for. This is a very honest conversation where uh, most of what I knew about her came from her shows and getting this much deeper sense of her life and how brutal some of the periods that she has turned into comedy or turned into stories were, and just what it is like to be in the world as an autistic person with her tendencies and predilections and needs and hopes and desires. Um, I found this to be a really moving conversation. I hope you will too. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Hannah Gadsby. Hannah Gadsby, welcome back to the show. Although for, for, for viewers, it's the first time on the show. <laughs> yes. Yes, the other one was an invisible participation. It disappeared into the ether. <laughs> but it is so good. There's a Wilco song I love called The Late Greats about how the, the best song has never been heard. Like it's like this one show nobody went to with a singer nobody has been around to to, to listen to. And it's like that. It's like the, the the perfect show that has been out there hanging out in the hanging out in the mists of legend. Well, you know, there was a time when that was the only form of communication. We've only very recently started to capture 
our communication and to make it permanent. And I think that's half the reason we're in this mess, you know, because once it's permanent, there's, there's, there's less chance for people to apologize and, uh, and, and shape, reshape their thinking because they're getting held to, held to ideas they've had previously. And then they double down on it and become assholes. <laughs> I think it's actually really right. <laughs> I, I, whenever I read old history books, I'm struck by how beautiful everyone is at crafting themselves in letters. And I think about how today it's, it's what you say. On the one hand, we're going to have like video evidence of every dumb thing we've ever said. But also the only way you'll hear what we thought about it is they're going to like pull text messages out of our phones when we're dead and we're all going to sound like defensive idiots. Which we are. So it's going to be a more honest future. <laughs> so I think often when you look back into history and you go, my word, we used to be eloquent. We used to have manners. No, we didn't. We just didn't leave proof of the otherwise. Do you think it was better when we wrote letters? Do you miss letter writing? Um, no, my whole life has been filled. I still feel guilt from letters I didn't write when I should have written them. When I was a, a kid, <laughs> I used to play golf. I played representative golf of all things in Tasmania. Anyway, it's a very long and po- possibly an interesting story. I, I, I'm not, I, I can't judge. But anyway, so I'd be selected to play in the state team. And for that pleasure, I had to then thank the committee that selected me. And then when I'd go and play in, you know, Australian juniors, then after it finished, I had to write a thank you letter to everyone involved in that. And I never got round to writing those letters. And and I look back in hindsight, and I was racked with guilt for years because um, I knew I should write those letters. I knew, understood that it was manners. But then also most of me was aware that my brother, who was also playing golf, didn't have to write those letters. And so the hypocrisy really, really annoyed me. And then also writing letters is, you know, you sit down and write a letter and it's just like you know what people want to hear and therefore it just sounds, you know, like a thank you note to the, the selection committee. I used to sit there and I'm like, well, I know what they want me to hear from me, so why don't they just pretend I wrote it because I'm just going to write what they want to hear and there's no sincerity to it at all. I, I, my whole life I've had a complete aversion to stupid exercises like that. Like you understand what people want so you do what they want. And then it just doesn't feel like there's any personal growth. So I never wrote the letters, but I felt the guilt around not writing the letters. Who enforced the differential thank you note regime? Was it was it that the, the women's team had to do it? Or was it your, your mom made you write letters and didn't make your brother write letters or wanted to make you write letters and didn't want to make your brother write letters? No, no, it was it was sort of like the done thing on the women the girls' team. So Basically, you played golf as a young woman to prepare you to be a wife, whereas boys could play golf because they play golf. So when I'd win a trophy, I'd win I'd win a casserole dish or uh, something like that. I've, I've still under my parents' home. I've really? got all these. Yeah, I've got my dowry. I was collecting a dowry. I, I've got lace tablecloths. <laughs> I've got a clock cut out of a hue and pine in the shape of Tasmania. That never needs to be used, although it's a tidy bit of wood. So, you know, I was basically, every competition I won encouraged me to, you know, put together a dowry. 
a blender. I won a blender once, whereas my brother would win things like golf balls and things that encouraged him to play more golf. Is there a lot more golf involved in Tasmanian marriages? Like, where did this association come from? No, it's just the idea of, like, what girls should do, and it bled into the the, the social infrastructure of golf. And golf is awful on every level as far as sexism and racism and elitism is concerned. I think I, I think it's so funny that I used to play it because it really is everything that is wrong with the world. What were you like as a kid? I was very slow moving. I was very quiet. I was wry, I think. People tell me I had a good sense of humour. Um, I liked routine. I was watching the world for the most part. I didn't participate in life until very recently. Except for the golf. Well, golf is like, sport was a really good thing for me because you knew what to do. So it's just sort of like, because I used to play hockey. I was from the, this is, this is fun. I was from the sort of town where if you didn't play a sport, then you got into trouble. If you're a boy, you did drugs. If you're a girl, you got pregnant. Really, honestly, girls did both. We can do it all. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it was a rough end of the world. It was a tough place to live. The town was dependent on industries and industries don't always look after the population. So, you know, it, it, it was a bleakness to it. And so my mum was very adamant that, that we played sport. And so I, I as a young kid, I, I played hockey and I was I was in goals because I didn't fare so well in the team sport part of it because there's so many variables. Whereas in goals, you know, the scope of what you have to do and what happens is much more limited. So I was a natural goalie and I was quite good at it. But then I had an accident. My life is punctuated by accidents. Uh, I had a lot, a lot of accidents. And this was one of the first big ones. Um, I, I tore my anterior cruciate ligament. I just fell off my bike weird one weekend and had to have a total knee reconstruction. And I was 11 years old. And that's not, a, that's not an easy Oof. reconstruction to have when you're still growing and certainly not an easy reconstruction for it to be effective, you know, when you're in a small regional hospital in the, you know, us end of the world. They did their best, but it didn't. It, you know, basically I had a, a knee that would collapse for my entire adolescence. It wasn't fixed until I was in my 20s. Um, so I'd have this knee that would just buckle underneath me in regular uh, intervals throughout my adolescence. And so I couldn't play hockey anymore. So my mum said to me, look, you need, why don't you play slow hockey, which was her joke about golf. <laughs> and it's a good That's one. a pretty good burn on golf. Mum, Mum's pretty good. But golf was also easy for my parents because mum was the cleaner at the local golf course and uh, a golf club. Not she didn't clean the course. Um, it's all it's made of dirt. That's a that's a that's a silly job. Uh, no, but she was a she she was the cleaner there. So it was sort of my brother and I uh, we played golf because it was easy for to keep 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 an eye on us because you you know mum and dad were kind of involved in the, in the club. But it's it's a it's a really it was a small club and it was $30. I, re- I remember this, it was $30 a year for my brother and I to play as juniors. And when I left Smithton, I couldn't play golf anymore because it was 
so expensive. I had no idea how expensive golf was. And then so I never played again. (laughs) But the sexism was boiled, baked right into the whole idea of golf. Like I couldn't be a member. My brother could be. I was an associate. Women couldn't play on weekends unless we didn't interrupt the men's games. And for a junior girl, like, that doesn't leave you much. You've got to go to school, you know. And then, like I said, the prizes were a casserole dish. So if I won a big competition, I'd win kitchenware. My brother won a new set of golf clubs. And so it was that that sort of thing. And then also there's so many restrictions on what I could or could not wear. When you go away for competition, the skirts were measured. Not that I wore skirts, I wore shorts. But they were measured to how high above the knee you had to be not that that ever bothered me either because the longer the better but basically being ladylike was the driving principle of the team whereas boys teams were like hey you should try and win (laughs) that's probably the most important thing in a game of golf you should try and win it's just a the 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 idea of being very competitive about golf to me. I know I don't want to insult all my, everybody who loves golf. Oh, insulted. I hate it. <laughs> but the idea of like really caring who wins at golf, um, I know it is rife, but 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 it always strikes me as peculiar, like it does for 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 many sports. But okay, your mom, your your, your mom pushed you to to play to play any sport, um, hockey and then slow hockey. Like what were you into? Did you have did did, did you have sort of your own sort of weird interests? Um I was just really just I think back to my childhood and I was just a dreamy kid. I would just live in my own head and I was very happy there. I remember doing things like I would just pick up pegs off the ground and put them in a bucket and then I'd swing swing and just throw the bucket so the pegs landed every which way and then I'd go around and put the pegs back in the bucket. And I was a bit too old for that to be like a game, but I just really enjoyed the sound of the pegs falling in the bucket. And, you know, I, I look back to all the things that I used to spend a lot of time and a lot of it revolved around repetition, pleasant sounds and things like that. You know, I used to play with Lego a lot, but I never built elaborate Lego situations because we didn't really have the the kits, we just had everyone's leftover Legos. So we just had a drawer full of spare Lego, which is fine. It's good. My brothers could build interesting things, but I would just build walls, just walls, because I was just into uh, repetitive uh, tasks. And I think it was because I just liked doing things while I was thinking. And that's what probably why I like golf. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's like it's a lot of alone time. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that would be right. Um, so I want to say before I ask the next question that, that for people who haven't seen Douglas, it's very much about autism and, and and your autism diagnosis and what it was like growing up with autism. And and since our our first like legendary but unreleased conversation, I've been doing a lot more reading <laughs> on that. And so I don't want to like um, like impose anybody else's experience on you. But one of the things that was really, I guess somewhere between poignant and really sad to me in some of the in the book I was reading was how much um, people refused to believe that uh, kids who are autistic who are enjoying doing something that didn't seem enjoyable 
to their parents or didn't seem socially like what a child should be doing were having a kind of rich, good experience and how many kids were institutionalized because they couldn't make that that single, like it seems now in retrospect, very obvious leap um, that people, you know, some kids like building big walls of Legos and, and having the repetitive activity, but the effort to like force people away from that just was the driver of all this terrible tragedy and what and what happened to children. Was it hard for people around you to sort of understand and lead you to what you liked? Or was that something that your family was pretty good about? Well, in many ways, I was very lucky. I was the youngest of a very large family. And so by the time I came along, my parents were exhausted. Um, <laughs> we weren't very well off. So my parents, you know, you know, they had that you know, looking after five kids on and not so much, not so much money. Um, you know, Dad delivered the papers in the morning, and then you know, Mum was the cleaner at the country club. They then cooked counter meals because I was trying to support my older brother through university, and then we used to work on farms just to try and make thing you know ends meet. So it's like a very busy place. There was no like as long as we were polite, you know, then that's my. My parents believe that we have to try our hardest and and be polite. Um, and I was kind of raised by my brothers and sisters more, um, not because my parents were absent. They were very present, but because they were tired and they were wrangling five kids and they're like, you, you're now a, a group, you, you play together. And so it was very easy for me to understand my place in a ready-made family. Um, and it was very easy for me to disappear when I needed a bit of quiet time. I had my, you know, I, I'd hide under the hedge and have a sit down and a nap or I'd hide in the linen press on a bad day, you know, like I just would disappear and take myself out. And I look back and I go, oh, I was resetting. But, you know, there's a difference between boys and girls when it comes, you know, biologically in, in autism, in the experience of autism. For some reason, and it's very, very understudied, but girls are better at masking. So when you're doing the wrong thing, you look like you're doing the right thing. You, you Girls often look like they're doing the right thing more often than young boys with autism are able to do. And, you know, I think that's a really interesting area of study, you know, that could be done. It was just like, is that because more expectations are on girls to be more social. So that, you know, often if boys hyper-focus, that's not such a bad thing. The real problem hits for most girls, and this is often why they're misdiagnosed or never diagnosed or uh, diagnosed much later in life, is because it becomes suddenly much more difficult to get away with looking like you're doing the wrong thing as relationships become more complex. So when I was really young, I was fine to a certain extent. People left me alone. I left them alone. I knew how to be polite. But then, you know, once sort of like early teens, relationships become more complex and particularly in, in you know, female school relationships. And that's when it all fell apart for me and it falls apart for many girls is that age and suddenly the simplicity of childhood and childhood relationships becomes very very fraught and girls with autism cannot navigate them. we're just terrible at them and the problem with that 
time frame is that it coincides with puberty. And then people go, it's just hormones. And so you get sort of lumped in, you know, I'd have a meltdown. I'd go to school. I'd just struggle all day. I'd do things wrong. People were mean to me. I'd get bullied. I'd come home and that's where you're safe. And you'd let it all go and I'd have meltdowns. And then that, that was then just like, oh, you're being hormonal. You're a teenage girl. But what was really happening was far more neurobiological as opposed to just being a teen. So my childhood up to a certain age was relatively happy and then it got deeply traumatic very quickly and I never recovered. Tell me a bit about what the experience of school was like. It sounds like it changed over time, but was it school in terms of the learning side of it? You talk a bit, a bit about this in Douglas. Was it the social side of it? Was it all of it? What, what, what was school like for you? Well, the, the, the pluses of school were routine. Um, the uniform, I love the uniform because we're told what to wear, so there's no choice. Um, I've carried that into adulthood. I only wear blue clothes now um, because it completely limits choice. And also it's a calming color for me to look at. So if I'm out in the world and I start to feel a little distressed, I always know that there's something blue I can look at, which tends to to calm, have a calming effect. Now when I have people who want to dress me for photo shoots, it's a, it's a really great boundary that I'm able to set. It's just like, no, nah, I'm not wearing your fancy clothes. I only wear blue ones. If you can't find me fancy blue ones, I'll wear my own clothes. Okay, bye. Um <laughs> It's amazing how much stylists do not want to listen. But anyway, that's another story and just not a world I really feel like I'll ever truly belong to. So the the routine and the uniform appealed to me, but where I really struggled was free time. I just never understood what I was supposed to do in lunch and and little lunch, as we called it. And the, the, the schoolyard politics were, were near on impossible for me to navigate. I used to walk around looking busy. That's all I did. Just and, and, you know, I knew how to keep my head down. I knew how not to draw attention to myself. So I was never bullied terribly. But in order to avoid being bullied, because, I, you know, I had a taste of it, but it meant that I just wasn't allowed to participate. So I was just completely alone and isolated and so I was just sort of a ghost almost and and then I the older I got you know during early years you know you have the one teacher who would teach you everything for the whole year and and I I I like that and then you get to I don't know what you call it where you are is it middle school I guess yeah that's where everything goes to hell yeah, and and I, I I just would have daily nervous breakdowns. As you, this is the wrong word, but they meltdowns because I, I couldn't under I couldn't get so many changes. I had every class was different. Um, I I have no I don't have executive functions. So being able to handle a timetable and different teachers, and and it's not just all those things for me. It comes out different smells. Like I take time to adjust to new environments and that includes, you know, visual clutter, smell, sound, all these very basic inputs before you even get to learning. So I was completely overwhelmed. And to put that into context, I went to a tiny school 
And I went to school with people that I'd known my entire life and, you know, I lived within a very small town. Like it wasn't, it's not overwhelming on paper, you know, like the town I grew up in, you know, it was 2,000 people. And it wasn't a thoroughfare. It was an end of the road. So we didn't even have tourists who'd interrupted in summer. Like it's not a, you know what I mean? Like it's a, it's what some people would call a hole. And um, certainly not me, but I just did. And so, <laughs> you know, I like to remind myself that, you know, when I'm struggling now, it's just like I, I didn't have any hope of struggling in the world that I live in now. I mean, uh, uh, surviving, you know, I was never going to adapt because I couldn't adapt to a world that was so consistent anyway. I have a, uh, a, an 18-month-old son, and um, I think a lot about when he starts going to school because uh, I'm not in any way comparing my experience to yours. I, I'm, I don't think I'm on, any, uh, on the spectrum, but I had a really hard time in school. I was bullied really badly and did very poorly, and, and I found school completely illegible. Like literally starting in middle school, which is why I said where it all goes to hell. I just like I, for years, I couldn't figure it out. And like college, it picked back up for me. Like end of high school, I started to like get my bearings. But I, I think a lot about how, and this is why your, your comment about just the smells and the changes brought this up for me, how we expect school to just be legible to kids. The idea that there would be intangibles that you might need to like move around, right? That, oh, like now as an adult, like how the room looks to me is important, right? I try to declutter my desk before I start working. There's music I like, music I don't like. The amount of control, I drink caffeine, like the amount of control I try to create in my space to do work well, it's pretty intense. And nobody tells you when you're a kid going to school that like, oh, your environment is going to matter for this. It's not just, are you smart? It's not just, are you paying attention? It's not just, are you being good? And I don't know, like, will I be more sensitive to that as a, as a father? Cause I had some of that experience, but it's, it seems like there's a lot we don't tell kids about going to school. Um, and in retrospect, it strikes me as really strange. Well, I did, it, because we don't know what it's like to go to school. Honestly, the, everything is, the landscape changes so quickly now. My mum had no idea what my school was like. This is a generation gap. Things are evolving. Like we, you know, we don't know what it's like to go to school surrounded by technology. We don't understand what that is. So I think the the speed in which, you know, society and the world and learning and living changes means that we literally do not understand what school looks and feels like now. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's hard for, like, my mum barely finished school. So it's not like she could tell me what high school was like. She was already, you know, had an apprenticeship to be a hairdresser by the time I was in my second year of high school. So how was she going to help? How is she going to help me navigate high school? You know, like a lot of parents now didn't grow up with, with you know, smartphones and, 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 you know, all those sorts of things as part of the social uh, interaction. So how are they going to help kids navigate that now? Like, I just, I think it comes down to a, a blindness and a, like, we actually don't understand the landscape that younger people have to navigate. And that's why it's so important. It's not to tell kids how it's going to be, is to listen to them as they try and find words to tell us how it is for them. And that's, 
sort of the struggle of autism, you know, like, you know, you see parents is like, you've got to go to the, you know, got to go to a birthday party. And someone with a kid with autism is like, I don't want to go to an, a birthday party. They're hellscapes for me. Uh, but parents are going, yes, but in order to be a normal person, you have to love birthday parties. You're sad because you're alone. And kids with autism are like, no, 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 I'm happy because I'm alone. Being alone is happiness to me. I visited a school for kids with autism in, in Portland when I was on tour and one of the most just beautiful sights I ever saw and it, or it made me grieve for my own childhood in a way was we, we pulled up and it was lunchtime and there was just a schoolyard full and it was quiet, just a schoolyard full of kids on their own doing their own thing and it was just beautiful because it's like these are the kids that stand on their own because people go oh they're being bullied and ostracized but what's happening at that school is is like they want to be on their own like and they you know there's a there's a difference between feeling safe to approach people when and if you need to and then also then on the other hand just being forced to always interact is really distressing what is the experience of a what was the experience of a kid's birthday party like for you? Um, I always made friends with their mums. They made more sense. And I didn't go, I, I, you know, I say that, like I went to about two or three and one was a slumber party and that was my last. I couldn't cope with that. I can't, I, just sleeping with the smell of another person's house. No, thank you. <laughs> when I was a kid, I'm okay now. <laughs> I bring, I bring my own smells with. Um, that's that's not as rank as it sounds. Um, <laughs> uh, anyways, you know, it's fine because it, it's just the noise, the noise and the, as I got older, the politics of social engagements. But when you're really little, it's fine. They're like, because adults are supervising, and they go, now we're going to play this game. Now we're going to play this game. And then there's always treats. So it always felt okay, but it was always overwhelming. I used to get really tired but there weren't actually that many birthday parties. Were there subjects you loved in school? I loved everything when I was younger, like when I'm, you know, in the first four or five years of school, and then I hated everything. I just got overwhelmed because I I didn't know how to learn. Um, I wonder how different it would be for me now, having access to the internet. Uh, honestly, the internet has allowed me to foster my creativity and my curiosity and I didn't I wouldn't have said I was creative or curious when I was at school I was I I just honestly didn't seem to exhibit either of those things and a lot of that's environment like I was at a school there you know any anyone with money or or means or that sort of stuff they went to school elsewhere so really it was a, a fairly rough school I went to. It was a good school, like, for what it was. And so I'm not saying I went to a terrible school, but it was not a, a school where people struggling to learn had any help, especially someone like myself who's smart. So I get by, but I was I was struggling. Like I wasn't living, you know, I wasn't learning to the fullest of my potential, but 40% of my potential was a good student at my school. So I could get by and that's what I learned to do, just get by. 
And just getting by is not the same as learning. I learned how to just do enough to pass. I I, I couldn't write essays. I, I couldn't finish. You know, like I, I, and I, I can't do a lot of things still. I have help now. I have help. You know, if I have to to write things, I had and that had to be handed in. I I know now that I'm allowed to have help and ask for help. But for many years, I didn't understand that I had a learning difficulty, and I just struggled under the weight of things. In year, the last year of school, my family moved from Smithton, and so I went to a place called Launceston, uh, which is in the north of Tasmania. It's the second biggest city. Uh, it's not very big at all, but it was so big to me and I I just ceased to function. Um, I'd have panic, you know, panic attacks, meltdowns, uh, usually on my own because I was invisible suddenly. My parents were stressed for their own reasons. My brothers and sisters had all left home and I was trying to navigate a brand new environment and I couldn't. And... I all but failed. The only reason I didn't fail school was I knew enough to get a doctor certificate. And I remember going to their school, I can't do these things, I'm really tired. And I was really tired, but I got diagnosed with a virus. If the doctor had asked any questions, I should have got a, a diagnosis of severe depression and anxiety. But I didn't even know those things existed, so I didn't know how to angle my answers and, you know, have words around those things. If the doctor had known even more, I I should have been diagnosed with autism. But what I had was a virus that allowed me not to fail, just pass, pass this kid. She's obviously smart. She's not well. We don't want to invest time in re-educating her. Let's just push her through. It was just incredibly easy for someone like me to fall through the cracks. Nobody cared, least of all me. So I finished school, and it's important to know I didn't learn anything. Like I was way behind. Like I didn't know how to do things that kids should know how to do. But I was, you know, smart-ish. But, I, you know, I barely spoke. I had no confidence. My first job out of school was um, I got a job at a supermarket. And I honestly thought that was good. That was where I was going to go. Like, that's my job. I'm going to work in a supermarket. And, you know, I'm smart, so I should be able to work my way up through the ranks of the supermarket. And that's wrong. I wasn't good enough to work in a supermarket. And I I look at what, you know, now in this point in history, people who work in, in supermarkets, no, nah, I did not have what it takes to work at a supermarket they are they are <laughs> they are in it people working in grocery stores at the moment that's a tough job and i i don't have what it takes to work at a, a grocery store and i i knew it then i was put in the delicatessen cuz they didn't want me at the front of the shop um <laughs> cuz i was monosyllabic i think it's really important to stress that like as monosyllabic like if i could talk I used the least words as possible. And, you know, I was much less capable of faking eye contact back then, so I'd be looking on the, at the ground and mumbling and and I needed to be told what to do every step of the way. I lacked initiative 
right? I, I could have been an incredible worker if someone every step of the way going, this is what you need to do, this is when you need to do it. But no one, I didn't sort of get taught that. So I was really, really struggling. And then I slipped on chicken fat. <laughs> it's just a funny thing to say. And then I had, I just. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's just, it's just I'm sure this was terrible. That was just a funny. <laughs> it's so funny. My life is full of this. It's like, and then a weird accident happened. And that's what it was. Like, it was a really, really bad accident. And I, again, had to have a, a total knee reconstruction. So, like, within three weeks of my first ever job, and I'm like, this is me. This is an I'm being an adult. I'm, I'm going to make it. I'd had a total knee reconstruction again, and I had to go and, you know, really massive surgery and um, rehabilitation, and that was really difficult to navigate. Yeah, still living at home, but my mum thought it was time I wasn't living at home and her way of letting me know that was not giving me any support. Um, <laughs> and so I was trying to, you know, navigate these things um, while not being able to walk and I didn't have any friends. I didn't know how to make friends and I was couldn't walk. Um, and then from that I... I did a season of farm work and then because it was just a season, you know, it's seasonal. Uh, and then I got a job selling knives. Um, and when I say a job, I mean I entered a borderline pyramid scheme and failed badly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, I, and then I just, adding to that was a certain amount of trauma which and the thing about trauma is you cannot imagine a future like you cannot project yourself into a future positive or otherwise you're trapped you're trapped so i was trapped physically financially literally and also figuratively there are a million bad ways to start your morning off the no coffee traffic jam, the soggy morning jog, the why is the dog taking so long Just go already walk. But you can unleash your ideal day with a perfect shower using Method hair care products. Designed with high quality ingredients, Method's new range of shampoos and conditioners will give your hair undeniable softness and shine. And hey, if you're a night shower kind of person, that's great too. Try pure peace infused with peony, rose water, and quinoa protein. Or Simply Nourish, crafted with coconut, rice milk, and shea butter. Or Daily Zen, made with cucumber, seaweed, and green tea. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Shop methodproducts.com. If you only know you from your specials, one of the things that I know about you from that is that um, you went to college and you got an art history degree and you seem to have kept more of that than certainly I kept anything of from college. So what was it that made some of the learning click or stick? Um, what is the line between the part of it that, that held for you and the parts of it that didn't? Uh, it was, it was uh, uh, like looking at, uh, looking at pictures. Pictures opened up a world for me. Um, and a way to learn about the world that that words and and speech didn't. 
um, it, it sort of seemed to trigger a, an expansive thinking that nothing else kind of did for me. I could travel. My mind could travel and take wonderful turns. And I, I was introduced to art when I was in my little school in Smithton and there was a few art history books and it makes me laugh now. They were just full of black and white images. So I learned about art through black and white images, but still... <laughs> It's like let me take let me tell you about a Picasso. I've only seen black and white ones, but I can still talk about it. And what was it's sort of the same way as you do a cryptic crossword. So the best way to do a cryptic crossword is you cheat, right? You look at the answer and then at the clue and try and work out how the clue gets formed. Uh, and then you start to learn the language. And so that's kind of how I started to build the world. Like I'd look at the art and then look at what people said about the art and then looked at what other people said about the art and then look at about the context of that, that that art was created. And every time I still had that object and that world to keep going back to, you know, that was full of colour and, and uh, you know, dynamic worlds but not overwhelming worlds where there was also sound and smell and all these other things like just focusing on one sense which was in most cases it was, it was visual so it, it both expanded and limited you know the touchstones so where I was from being interested in art meant nothing there was no galleries, there was no, you know, there was no art world, there was no first rung of their art world ladder where I was from. Like it didn't seem like it was just the joy of it. And so I was always obsessed with art. I was always thinking and looking at art. But, of course, we didn't. I didn't have access to the internet. So it wasn't like I, was, I could go online like I do now and just go on these rabbit hole journeys and go, you know, just, have the best time, you know, tracing ideas around. I was stuck with libraries and libraries are not places I, I tend to think well in because it's something about the temperature of books puts me to, you know, we don't flourish in the same temperature books and I. Um, so libraries tend to make me go to sleep and the fluorescent lights make me slightly ill. So, you know, I'd take, take books out of the library and then I could go home and, you know, and even when I was sort of, you know, left school, I would I would go to the public library and do that. Um, I also have an affinity with indexes. I love going through the indexes. You learn what's important in the book before you have to go into the book. And it's sort of that makes me see that I, I the way that I make sense of the world is different to everybody, you know, to most people. I have to work my way backwards to make sense of things. But doing that, in doing that, what I've discovered later in life is that I get different things because of the way that I think and the way that I learn means that I have different perspectives and different a different way of seeing the world that I don't think is, I always used to think it was um, a deficiency, but now I see that it's just, it's, it's, um, a strength? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but a strength and I always think of the strength strengths in in terms of outside of me. You know, inside of me when I'm just on my own. It's just how I do things. 
and I like it and I love it and I don't feel the need to justify it to anybody else, right? But as soon as I start being in the world and trying to communicate, it was always a deficiency. It was an embarrassing thing, you know, that I had to do these things and I was so slow. And now I see it as a strength, but it was always a wonderful place for me when I'm on my own. So then how does somebody who is monosyllabic, tries to speak in as few words as possible, um, doesn't like big groups of people, move to stand-up comedy? Um, Well, there's a large chunk of my life missing between where I left off and when I started doing comedy, and that was, you know, going to college. And that, that came about because I... I was just running out of like life options. I couldn't even hold down a job at a supermarket. I failed at trying to be an adult for long enough that I became what's known here as a mature age student, which meant you could pretty much get into university. How old were you when you when you went to university? Uh, 21. So it's not very old, but they make you feel like, well, you're an adult now and you failed at being an adult. So here's a mature age student slot. <laughs> <laughs> 21 um which is so funny to me so naive and immature um on so many levels because i'd never participated in life i'd never actively been involved in life i just lived inside of my head and whenever i was outside of my head i was just coping so i moved to hobart um which is the first time i lived i was 21 the first time i lived outside of home and it was an unmitigated disaster. I failed again, but again, because I'd learned the trick of getting a, like I used to think I was cheating. It's like, oh, if I get a doctor's certificate, it's fine. But what I realized in hindsight, I was like, no, I needed help and I didn't get it. And I didn't know how to ask for it. And I was depressed and, you know, a really, really horrible anxiety, like, I was, I could not function. And that's when I started, I drank quite heavily. I started doing quite heavily because, uh, and smoking, um, because I, I guess, I'm not guessing it is, like basically numbing the input. So in a sense, because I'm so sensitive, I'm so sensitive to my environment, noise, sound, smell, <laughs> noise is sound. But sound, I feel sound, so sound becomes a feeling quite strongly in my body. And and that works both ways, but I've only just discovered the pleasant feeling sounds and how to skew my, my environment so that things feel pleasant to hear. But for the most part, pain at pain. I felt I feel a lot of pain with certain sounds. And add to that a lack of executive function. And that's when I was beaten up. So that was a <laughs> such a low, like I can't even, I, don't, I just feel such sadness for that, Hannah, because it's like so alone. And then trying to understand my sexuality, uh, I knew I was gay, but also I knew like homosexuality was only legalised in 1997 and that's when I was 19. So I was living, not being able to hold a job down at a supermarket then. And just because the law had changed didn't mean it was necessarily a safe place to be gay. Um, And certainly I found that out uh, when I was 
in, in Hobart my first year of university and that. So like, I, it's interesting to me because people do only know me from the net and I in the net I'm talking about that time of my life. But I think people take me and think that I was the person I was when I stood up on stage as the same person I was when all that happened to me. But I wasn't. Like I was a husk. I was a shell. I was so full of anxiety and an inability to navigate the world. I was alone. I, I didn't really have friends. I started to make friends at university, but I didn't understand how to maintain those friendships. I couldn't pay bills. And <laughs> what's really fascinating to me in that is like that's the year Ellen came out. And <laughs> it just blows my mind. Now, Ellen's quite in the news at the moment. Um, and people are starting to ask me, what do I think about that? And I just, I can't help but think of the context, my own context in all that. And it's like, you know, when Ellen came out, it didn't mean a thing to me. Like it had absolutely no impact into my, because that's where I was. I was a nothing person. Like I didn't even identify as being gay. I was subhuman. And so after I, I got beaten up, I just sort of decided to, apply for every single university on the mainland as I possibly could, mainland being the rest of Australia. And I couldn't do that because that involved an enormous amount of executive function that I, I just simply don't have. So basically what I was able to do is find universities that taught art history because I knew that that was something I was at least interested in. And there's very few of those in Australia. Um, so I just applied to all of them and I, I managed to get into one and then I left Tasmania. And so what happens at, at university that begins to, to, to bridge the gap between the person who can stand on the stage and the person who is a husk? Um, it was a very slow recovery. Um, going to the mainland helped enormously. Like Tasmania had become very, very claustrophobic for me in many ways, like I had to learn the basics of life. I had to learn how to look after myself. I had to learn how to pay bills. And I struggled, like doing those normal things still to this very day are, are things that I, I actually really, really struggled to do. One of the things that happened at university, which sort of throws this, like, are you kidding me? Like, is this, are you kidding me now? Are you, are you just making this up now? But I got hit by three cars while I was at university. That's too, I'll, I'll, I'll all at once or just one just every couple no, no, of weeks or no. how did you how did you yeah. space them out well so the first one it was my first 6 months of being there i just sort of i it just sort of now that i say it out loud it's going to sound ridiculous but it was a hit and miss i uh, know a miss and hit so basically a car I was cycling um, and so a car just went too close to me and i had to swerve and i i hit a parked car but I <laughs> broke my ankle. A missing hit is a hilarious way to describe that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So I hit a parked car, but after being sort of, you know, as, uh, drivers in Australia hate cyclists. And the way they show that is by driving dangerously. Um, the better the roads, the worse the drivers. That's, that's a good rule of thumb. I've learned this. 
anyway, so I had a, you know, so that was like, it was a bit of a dust up, but just a broken ankle. That's fine. And then the the next one is someone reversed. I kept riding my bike, and this is an important distinction to make. <laughs> I, I kept getting hit by cars, and I kept getting back on my bike. And the reason for that is that I couldn't afford to drive because in order to drive, you have to get driving lessons and a car, and those two things were just not anything that I was capable of, of scrambling together. And the, also the old, uh, alternative to that is public transport. And I, I cannot, I cannot read bus timetables. Um, I cannot cope with the environment on public transport. Like it's just really distressing. Public transport is really distressing for me. So the option for me was to cycle. Um, and I love riding my bike. I love moving through space. So I really love that. I did not love getting hit. And so the second one is a man just reversed out of his driveway too quickly and I was riding past and he collected me and I, I cracked ribs and bruised my liver on that one. And what was really strange about that one is I was really, really badly hurt, but he sued me or he asked, I don't know that he sued me, he just he just asked for money and then I disappeared. I don't know what <laughs> But he wanted to. He wanted me to pay for his boot, like it, you call it a trunk. Like I dented his trunk, and he wanted like me to pay for that. So I gave him a down payment on it. I didn't have any money. Like what a bully! Like what a bully! He hits a kid on a bike. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah, but because I didn't understand how the world worked, people could bully me, and people did. Like people would take advantage of me all the time. Anyway, so that was that. And so I kept falling behind at university, naturally. And then the, the last one was, and this all happened within a year of the, the third time I got hit was actually really bad. I got doored. Um, so I was cycling and then someone opened their car door and collected me and I, sh- I, I, I shattered my collarbone. You know, so there was no one looking out for me. At that stage. I mean, I... They could have been had I asked for it, but no one was because I didn't know how to ask for it because I didn't think I was worth it. So I had this broken bone and it should have been fixed surgically because it was so far displaced. But the doc, you know, I don't know, maybe I was uninteresting to the people in an emergency or something, but they've just gone, it'll be right. And it wasn't right. And then down the track, I had to have it repaired. So this was all, in Australia we have healthcare, so I was looked after in that sense. <laughs> and because it was a road accident, there's a certain amount of protection you get around road accidents. People have insurance for that, so and it's compulsory insurance. So these, the, the, at least at this stage, my, my healthcare was being paid for because it was a, an accident that wasn't my fault. But I had a pin put in my shoulder and then the pin didn't work. The pin ended up coming, working itself loose and coming out the back of my shoulder. It removed itself from the clavicle and came out. And the doctor who put it in, he told me that I shouldn't sue. (laughs) And I believed him. And I'm like, oh, my God, you're the last person who should be giving me that advice. But I was so green. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, yeah, because, you know, you're the lucky one. It happened to two other people in the US and it went and it punctured their lungs. So the pin went the other way. 
And so you got this whole sort of like, I was just not the person to be able to fight this medical insurance thing because, you know, now you know, like, you know, medical companies that make these things and, you know, what is the, you know, it's a minefield I know now as an adult who can look at these things. It's like there was never any hope for someone like me to be able to fight for my rights there. That It's like this this pin shouldn't have been in circulation, shouldn't never be put into a human body. But I'm exhausted. I'm on my own, you know, and the doctor who put it in there said it's useless to fight this. So there it was. So that's what I was actually doing at university is I had four more operations on that that shoulder and continued to sort of just do the bare minimum to pass. And then I graduated and fell off the face of the earth again. And how do you end up on a stage? Well, that's the mystery. I... I uh, I started working, I was working in a bookshop and as a cinema projectionist, film projectionist. I had a skill, but I couldn't make enough money off those. I didn't know how to graduate from entry-level casual positions. I didn't know how to like, oh, you've been working in a bookshop for four years. Would you like to manage the weekend shifts? Those things were never going to happen to me. I could I was just bad at life and bad at work. You know, lacking initiative is like is really hard to to make it. So I then got a job as a farm laborer and was traveling around the country, you know, harvesting broccoli, planting trees. And I it's a that's an industry that really exploits workers. So basically I was working, you know, sixteen hour days and not earning enough to pay rent. So I was living in a tent. So you were homeless? Yeah, I was homeless. And in a cycle that I didn't know how to break out of. Like I didn't know, because I was also traumatized. I didn't know how to imagine a better future. And I didn't think I deserved one. I look back and I'm like, if I hadn't found stand-up comedy, I would be dead by now. I just really honestly believe that. The fact that I found my way out of it is a story of such rich absurdity that it doesn't, it almost doesn't ring true. You know, it's like the, the rags to riches story that is just so ridiculous that I'm almost embarrassed. Like I just go, people just won't believe me. But there it is. Um, I've moved past what other people think. <laughs> it's like I just don't know how else to explain it. So what ended up happening is I had another accident. I A piece of farm machinery kicked back and it basically tore all the ligaments in my hands which meant that I just had this, I just, there's no stability. And I had to, again, uh, I got screwed around with workers' comp, I'm sure. Like I look back on that and going, oh, I could have, like I was a very vulnerable citizen and nobody really looked after me and I didn't know how to ask for it. Anyway, so I had to have my wrist fused. I've had, a, you know, all the bone taken out of my hip and put into my wrist and I've, I've got plate and screws all through there so that's what's holding that together and during that process like I got to go to hospital which was just like (laughs) it sounds really silly but it's just like I remember going to hospital going I've been living in a tent and that was the point at which I got back in contact with my family 
like I'd come out during university at university and it didn't go well and I, I didn't have the strength to wrangle that emotion and so I just let myself drift away from my family they didn't ostracize me I just didn't know how to navigate it so I let go and drifted as soon as I got back in contact with my sister you know I went to live with my sister and then after that I moved to Melbourne and I lived with my brother like and that was up until really, really recently. I was relying on my family to get me out of the the financial desert. That I was like just, you know, I was homeless. And if it wasn't for my family, I would never have been able to pursue comedy because it was the generosity of them that allowed me to do something, you know, to be able to pursue comedy. And the reason I got into that was after I'd had my surgery is I entered a competition <laughs> And there was no reason for me to do it. I still don't understand why I did it, but I did it. I entered a national competition here. It's called Raw Comedy. It's run through the Melbourne Comedy Festival. And they just basically travel the country and try and find, you know, interesting new voices. And I signed up for it and I did all right. Like I won, I got into the state finals in, in, and I didn't get any further than that. But then the next year I won. Like I entered it the year after and I, I won the national competition, which was televised. And it's no small thing, but I understood how to navigate stage better than I ever understood how to navigate a normal room, like a normal social interaction. I, as soon as I stood on stage, I, I somehow knew how to cajole the energy in the room. You know, like I just, like I felt like a conductor. Like I knew people had a response to me and I knew how to wrangle that response to me. Like the strangeness of my my presence made people take notice of me. And then once I had that notice, I knew what to do with it. And, you know, I'm certainly a lot, I wasn't like as good as I am now when I first started, but I had, I guess that's what they call a natural ability. So Every opportunity I got, I made the most of. And when I first started doing comedy, I was monosyllabic. Like my first joke was, and I'd deliver it like this, i go, hi, my name's Hannah. That's a palindrome. It's a word you can spell the same way, forwards and backwards, <laughs> if you can spell. It's a family tradition. Everyone in my family has palindromic names. We've got mum, dad. Nan, Pop, and my brother Kayak. Now, and it's a really great joke, but like that's how I deliver it. Like, there's no, I've learned how to put inflection in my voice. I've learned these things, but even the bare bones of it, like, I, I understood how to make jokes and then how to be a presence on stage. And there's no evidence that that was going to be the case. Like there's nothing in my life that would have said, oh, this one's a natural performer. In Nanette, you define telling jokes as sort of building this tension in the audience and then releasing it. Do you think part of it is simply that as somebody who found conversations less legible, that you were just comfortable with the tension? So when it came time to inflict it upon others, that was a more natural space for you? Well, but yes, I couldn't navigate in this tension in that, but also I 
I'm a tension. My, my actual presence has always caused tension. I've never done things right. I'm, I can be, you know, it's less so because I've learned more as I've gotten older. I'm a late bloomer. But when I was a kid, like I was, I didn't do things right. And when you don't do things right, you cause tension. So I learned how to diffuse that tension that I myself created. And I always used to think it was just the fact that I was, you know, a butch woman that caused the tension. But now I understand it's also, it's, it's you know, how I interact with the world courtesy of my neurobiological situation that also causes the tension. So that natural ability that I had as soon as I walked on stage was really grafted through a life of being a presence that was off-putting to people. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research in behavioral science and dives into themes like, can we learn to make smarter decisions? And the power of do-overs. The show is hosted by Katie Milkman. She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. In each episode, Katie talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast or find it wherever you listen. I want to take a slight turn here into a tensor or yet tensor um, space that I was thinking about rewatching Nanette getting ready for this conversation. Um, so in journalism, political journalism, there's been this ongoing set of fights about speech and safety. And I think on some level, tension. And something you say in Nanette at the end, as you begin giving your story more honestly, you say that you're not going to do the thing here of releasing the tension of what your life has really been like, that that tension is now ours, the audiences to hold. And that that should give us some idea of the tension people on the margins hold all the time. And I wanted to ask about that experience because I think I do think part of what is happening in, in my industry is people are very uncomfortable with the amount of tension and they want it to stop. And that people who have been under tension don't. They want that to be shared. What is it like to be under tension all the time? What what lessons does it teach? What do you take from it? It's not a great place to be in. And it's called stress. And humans don't operate the best when they're stressed and distressed. But when you're on the margins, that's a constant. And I've only just recently left that space. Like I, I've suddenly found myself in a position just as the world is devolving into chaos and uncertainty, I've suddenly found out that I'm not distressed all the time anymore. And I didn't understand that that's how, in fact, how I was living. I'm really new to this. And I find myself in this strange world where, like, you know, people would look at me and go, oh, you're privileged, and I am, but I don't have years of training to be in this position. I have much more experience in being invisible and unheard and living in deep distress and stress than I do 
privilege. I know what it's like to feel tension and to have everything, like I said it about how I lived my life, like I didn't live it. I coped. I tried not to draw attention to myself. I live with, you know, pulling my head in. Um, and when you do that, you don't get to live. You don't get to talk. You don't get to to breathe. Like I, I really understand that sentiment of the the Black Lives Matter you know, I can't breathe, like, for, for very, very, very different reasons. But I understand that feeling of not being able to breathe. And it is not, it is inhumane to keep people in that state. And when people tell you that they can't breathe, it takes an enormous amount of pain and strength to be able to not just say it out loud, but to understand that that is what is happening to you. Like I didn't understand how terrible my life was because that's what being on the margins does to you. It it tells you that being treated inhumanely is all you deserve and that's the reality of it. I saw that letter and you know what, like, I don't care. Like what that is talking about is not actually, it's not a fight for survival. And you know what, like if if there's a mob on Twitter, like it's the problem with the, the debate is toxic because only the worst voices are amplified. There's no, like, it just is this, this this binary of, you know, and I just get exhausted by that. And I, you know, to a certain extent I grew up with that, like the debate around human rights with, you know, the legalisation of homosexuality in Tasmania. All you ever heard were the extremes of those arguments. And what was missing from that were people just caring. I just think in this moment in time, people can't pay their rent. People are literally and metaphorically struggling to even breathe. And it's like, if you've got a platform, then just use that platform to talk about things and and draw attention to people who don't have a voice or move aside and give a platform to people who need a voice. Like I just, this is the elite complaining. That's what that says to me. Like I read that, like I understand it's all intellectual and fun intellectual games, but like freedom of speech is 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 in trouble. But that letter just seems like a waste of energy to me. Like I just was bored by it. I'm just like, are you kidding me? This is what you're going to waste your time on? Like I understand it's really important. Freedom of speech is is the big, but you've got freedom of speech. Use it. Not to complain about how you feel a little scared to say your peace of mind. Like Apart from that, what are you using your freedom of speech for then? What are you using it for? What are you using your platform for? Like if you're just using your platform, your enormous platform to talk about 
freedom of speech, then you are wasting your time. Use your freedom of speech constructively to, to, to actually build something, to help others use theirs. One of the things that strikes me as maybe similar between the comedy world and some of the debates that have happened there in the past couple of years and the journalism world is that it feels to me like if you have these big platforms now, it stopped being enough to just have opinions because there's so much more conversation in different directions. The audience can speak to you. Like everything is taped. It goes up on YouTube. There are conversations around your conversations. And so now you have to, if you want to take on these hard issues, you have to have all these other skills of managing a hard conversation, of dealing with feedback and criticism well, of all these things a lot of us weren't taught. And I, I feel like I'm seeing something sort of similar to what I've seen in, or what I think I've seen in comedy, where as the audience began to be able to speak back, there's been a lot of anger um, and a lot of fear. Um, there is some fear, right? People are worried about being canceled or fired. I don't want to take away that there is that there can be real concern here. But it does seem to me that just part of it is, yeah, it's just going to mean that if you have this big platform, you're going to have to learn how to do more than have views. And that, that's harder. Like it is, it is definitely harder. Like I feel it too, like it is harder, but I think it's going to be what it looks like from here on out. Like, yeah, I don't have a problem with have taking responsibility for your speech. Like, you know, the, the cancel culture only happens in in this area. Like in other places, it's just called ha- taking responsibility for your actions. I mean, I just don't come from media entertainment backgrounds. Like I had to work with with dangerous men for a long time. Like I had to work alongside of men who are trapped in the cycle of poverty and drug abuse and we were working on farms together and I was frightened of those men and I had no voice, you know, like I was unsafe in their company. But I'm not vulnerable like they are now. Like, and that's a very interesting space for me to occupy. Like, all of a sudden, I have a huge platform. I have a huge, you know, like sphere of influence. Those guys who were, could have, like, you know, they posed a real, like, I was, it was dangerous to be in their midst, right? For me. But their life still sucks. <laughs> like, I don't know how to navigate that, but I just, like, that's the world I'm from. Like, if there's a fine about freedom of speech, it was a literal fight <laughs> with punches thrown. Like, it's a rough place. And so, you know, sometimes comedians are so sensitive about criticism, it's weird to me. Like, and then their fans get even more sensitive on their behalf and as a bit of a, uh, you know, and I, I just keep going back to like this is just silliness. Like this is immature use of time. Like if, like I, I'm very confused about the moment, <laughs> what people are angry about, 
I honestly don't understand what a lot of people are angry about. I do understand that they're angry and I care that they are, but I don't know what they're angry about. I think one of the things I hear that I heard for a long time in comedy and I'm starting to hear from a more part of the, the journalism world is this idea that the audience through Twitter and social media, not the audience, but like a very, like a portion of the audience, like the, the loud voices in the audience, that because of their ability to create crowd dynamics, that it's creating like boundaries on what people can say and that the comedians feel that they were there to have hard conversations and talk about things that, you know, are tricky to talk about. And now they feel they can't and they're watching their backs and can't work out material. And you get that sort of in the political world too. Yeah, look, in, in comedy, like it's just bringing the reality of what it always should have been. And that is a dialogue with your audience. Like if you stand up in front of a crowd, you're not talking at them. And I think a lot of comedians think that that's their right. They get up and say they get to talk at a group of people. But a crowd is a living, breathing thing. And in the room, that's what it used to be. That crowd was just in the room and you had a dialogue with that room. But now it's got to the point where that room has now expanded, right? It's not just the room that you're in. And so there's a huge, like, you've just got to be more careful and more, you know, if you're going to say something, then you better believe it. And that's just responsible speech. Like, if, if, if you believe something, then you should be all right. Like, if that's, if you're holding your, but a lot of comedy, particularly when I was coming up through the ranks, uh, what was in vogue was sh shock comedy. So the, the laugh came from being shocking. And they're probably, shock comics are probably struggling in this moment because what they believed in was the right to shock, not what they were saying. And so I think this has become a really difficult time for them because they're like, it's my right to shock. And I'm like, well, what are you saying? Um, so, you know, like it's just a, I think it's a, you've got to really believe in what you're saying now and you've got to be careful on how you phrase that. And mistakes are going to be made because language is messy, but I honestly believe we shouldn't be recording everything. Like <laughs> that's where the real trouble comes. What I said in the very beginning is it's like permanent, permanent records of communication it's really a, like it's a it's a really difficult space to navigate because communication needs to be able to be flexible and dynamic and adaptive but because we have these permanent records now this is like you need to get what you got to say out best like you either have to be just really 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 on point every single time you say anything or you just be completely bland and that that is a boring world to live in a boring world of extremes and so I, I think what has to happen and it probably won't happen anytime soon is that we need to learn a language of adaptation evolution forgiveness shame learning how you know to shame without the permanence of that shaming like you go hey you messed up there <laughs> how do we then move on from that? Like people are very, you have to be defensive or you have to apologize. There's no nuance to the 
to the discussion. And this is an incredibly difficult space for me to navigate because this is a really hyper-connected and hyper-social world. And I'm really bad at being social. Like I'm really, like my autism (laughs) means that I'm quite blunt and I fail to pick up on all the nuances. So this is this is a really difficult space for me personally to navigate. So I don't feel sad when a comedian who used to shock any time he likes suddenly finds it a difficult space. I'm like, it's always been a difficult space. The world has always been a difficult space. I want to underline what you were saying about the capacity to have people make mistakes and feel shame and and, and move on. I, I do think a big part of the problem is, is a lack of clarity and what that process should look like, often because there's not real accountability, but there's social accountability. Um, nothing happens to most people who misstep, but also the the feeling of something happening to you is like 25,000 people turn on you online. Is um, It's a kind of trauma to people that sounds weird when they say it, so it doesn't um, they don't know what to do with it. But at the same time, the part of it that I've become, I don't want to say unsympathetic to, I agree with what you're saying about it's hard for everything to be recorded. But in my industry, a lot of these problems are just coming from everybody moved onto Twitter. And for years in journalism, we knew that if you wanted to be in a hard conversation talking about tricky issues, we would have this big edifice to protect you, editors and copy editors and people who would check your headline and all these things so that if you like ended up in a bad place, at least your institution was there with you and it tried to help and was now bought in alongside you. And everybody just works out the material on Twitter with none of that around them. And then things go bad. And I think a lot of the tension in my industry just comes from the constant feeling of that. Yeah, well, why are you working stuff out on Twitter? Like, why? who does that? Why you would you do that? shouldn't work it out on Twitter. It's, a, it's the worst. They, everybody. And I've done it too. I want to say that. Like, I have done this. I've stopped basically... I've stopped tweeting except for tweeting out my articles just because I don't... I've decided that, like, it's time for me to stop saying I don't like it and act like I don't like it. But it's become a place that a lot of journalists work out the material. Then they work it out poorly and there's a bad reaction. And just everybody's like anger, like long term, just keeps going up at each other. Yeah. Well, journalists should be better at learning. Like what's, what's wrong with journalists? That's true. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, I'm not a journalist, but I, I don't. Like also I think that if you have a large platform outside of Twitter, you should get off. Like you should just, like it really could be a space where people who don't have a voice get to have a voice. But if people with huge followings are then just, you know, you just, it's a bullying pulpit. That's a great, that's a great term for it. I really enjoy Twitter for finding voices that I would never, like all social media, like it's a great place to witness, like interesting voices saying interesting things. But then if you then have people who already have a massive platform outside of, you know, those things, then you know, then it it becomes, uh, I don't know, there's a toxicity to it. And there's a certain amount of joy I think people get from jumping on a bullying bandwagon, you know. Like, do you know when you don't like something and you think the whole world loves something and then you find out two or three people don't like it and then you're like, "Oh, oh, this is great, and then all of a sudden there's a tipping point where you're like, oh, no, this is now bullying. It turns out everybody felt the way that I did, but nobody was acknowledging it. 
that happens a lot on Twitter. And I just don't know where, how to find that break where people just go, hey, 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 now this is turns. <laughs> like all of a sudden, like, I just don't think we understand how to see when, like, where's the line where someone who has a lot of power and needs to be held accountable says something awful? There's a line, right, where and a tipping point where it becomes just toxic. But that means you can't, like, there's, there must be a point at which it's helpful for the person to know that they've been a fool, yeah, they've been, they've been harmful with their speech or something like that. But then, like, at what point? It needs to be drawn to attention, you know, like, hey, you are saying you're, you know, you're being careless with your words, you're being careless with your ideas. You're not thinking about this perspective, right? But there's a, I don't know. I just think there's an oxygen that goes into it and it just explodes and nobody's listening and everyone's being angry and then it's just like, well, this is silliness in a biscuit. But I withdraw. Like I, you know, even if there's an argument in a in a room, I'm like, oh, this this is not where I want to be. And then you get, I mean, one gets, I get, <laughs> try not to, but you get defensive, right? If it feels like everybody's ganging up on you and it's getting unfair. You talk in Annette, I think, in a really uh, interesting way about feedback, right? People coming up to you after a show and you're like, that's the wrong moment to come up to me. And there is an interesting thing here. I don't want to say that people have a responsibility to give uh, feedback well, but there's both a responsibility on the part of people with a platform to be able to hear criticism without being overwhelmed by it, which I think is a hard thing, right? To hear criticism without being cowed by it, um, because none of us like being criticized and um, and not getting too defensive so we can't hear it. And then also, I think there's some question, if at least if you're somebody who wants to actually be delivering criticism, not just throwing lightning bolts, you know, there, there are ways to deliver it that people can hear it. And maybe it's, you know, maybe there's a bit of an ask of audiences on this too. I, I think defensiveness is normal. It's what you do after that. Like, so what I do after I, I, you know, I created two shows, which are pretty much a crafted response that then therefore becomes entertaining for a lot of people to to talk about it. Like, I, I don't feel the need to go back to every person who makes me feel defensive and go, hey, uh, hey, 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 that's unfair. Um, it's just that's exhausting. Also, people project themselves and what they think you should be. Like I I disappoint so many people because they think I speak for them and I don't and I can't and I don't understand why they think that I could. You know, so there are people in the feminist community who don't like what I say and there are people in the trans community who don't like what I say and there are a lot of men who don't like what I say and there's like a lot of people don't like what I have to say. But I'm still okay. I'm all right because I, I think I think it often boils down like I believe in what I'm saying. I believe what I'm saying, and I believe that my reason to speak is not to cause harm. My reason speaking is, you know, it's I want to, I want to disrupt people's thinking in order to, you know get them to have a different uh, 
different way of thinking about things they already think about. I'm not in the business of changing people's minds. I'm in the business of changing how people make their minds. You know, I don't have the end point. I don't have the solution in mind. Like I don't, I don't want to go, this is how you should think, but I really do want to, you know, I like to shake up the room so people think about how they think. And that because that's the reality of autism. Like you, you have autism, you have to think about how you think. That's what you do. And neurotypicals don't do that. They just assume the way they think is right. The way that you think, not the end point, not what you think, but how you think. So like when I get, you know, pulled up about the specifics of what I say and things like that, like I listen, I think it's interesting. But ultimately what I'm in the business of is to demand people be more aware of how and why they think, not what they think. I think that's a lovely place to come to a close. Um, So let me ask you what's always a final question here, which is what are three books or having done this with you before audiobooks um, that you, (laughs) or paintings for that matter, that that you would recommend to the audience that that you've loved? I like um, Louise Bourgeois, uh, Saint Sebastian as a woman. That is a piece of art I would like people to know about. And they, and they can just go Google that and go on their own adventure. Saint Sebastian was a woman is a great recommendation. Not that I would know, but um, but I'm excited to go look it up myself. Yeah, you should. <laughs> also, it's an evolving piece. So she did many... Um, she re- it's something she revisited and it evolved and the story of the evolution of the piece is really fascinating also. I love The Hidden Life of Trees. It's an audio book I listen to all the time. I like trees a lot. Trees, trees are pretty cool situations. And you know what I'm listening to on a lot and it's a really weird one and I'm just going to put it out there, not as a recommendation as a book, although I'm sure it's pretty great, but it's the book that puts me to sleep and makes me feel calm. And I think this speaks the most to the idiosyncrasy of my neurobiology. It's a book about Putin. (laughs) It's a biography of Vladimir Putin. Really? Yep. When I'm feeling distressed, I I put the book about Putin on and I don't listen to it. I, there's something about it. And I guess I guess, you know, I, I listened to it once and paid attention to it and, you know, but then now it's just become a book that I don't know. It must be, it's very bizarre. Like he's the worst, right? He's, he's not a good guy and his story's not good and his abuse of power is not great. It's the new, new Tsar by uh, Stephen Lee Myers, The Rise and Reign of Vladimir Putin. That's that's how you know that I'm not typical of the, the neuro variety. Hannah Gadsby, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you to Hannah Gadsby for being here, to Roger Karma for researching, Jeffrey Geld for producing. His Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. 
It's no wonder the Fundrise Flagship Fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise Flagship Fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com slash Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com slash Flagship. This is a paid advertisement. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux. So how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. So if it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts.